Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. Favorite Christmas movies. Let's hear them. I've actually never seen Die Hard, to be honest. I know, right? Can you believe it? Maybe one of these days. Um, So I heard Die Hard. Were there any others? (laughs) Elf. I was hoping Elf would come up. Yeah, Elf's a good one. Um, What? Christmas story. Oh, yeah, Christmas story. The the local play group was doing that one. Uh, I know. Um, The Christmas Carol. That one's good. That one's good. Every one of those is good. There's a number of those ones out. Yeah. You were talking about Mickey's though, right? Oh, Muppets Christmas Carol. Yeah, that's a good one too. Jingle Jingle All the Way. If you're having trouble sleeping, watch Jingle All the Way. Ernest Saves Christmas. Uh, Oh yeah, Home Alone. That's a great one. Yeah, yeah, Home Alone. Um, And Home Alone 2. And Home Alone, how many of you ever saw Home Alone 3? Was there, that's when he's all grown up, it's someone else, right? Yeah, I don't watch, as soon as they recast the kid as someone else, I don't, that's when I'm out, it's not worth it. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the movie Elf, because it's one of our family's favorite Christmas movies, um, as it would be for any good family, I imagine. Um, anyhow, we've seen it a billion times, and I was watching it yesterday with the family, we all sat down to watch Elf. Except for one of the kids who shall remain nameless went downstairs to play uh, Fortnite with his friends. Um, we This has been a year where we have these family movies that we try to watch together every Christmas. And I don't even think we've watched one together yet. So uh, say a prayer for the Dieter family. We could, we could really use your prayers. Anyhow, we're watching Elf and I saw something I'd never noticed before. And once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it, and and the movie's maybe ruined for me, and since Misery Loves Company, I'm going to ruin the movie for you as well. Uh, so if you're not familiar with the movie, Buddy the Elf goes to New York to find his dad, and, and his dad turns out to be, uh, he works in the publishing industry, and he's kind of a real, like a mean boss, uh, but then the owner of the publishing company is an even meaner boss, and and I, I noticed this thing where when the owner of the publishing company old man, uh, whatever his name is, uh, when he's really angry and in several scenes he talks and he like closes his right eye and glares out of his left eye like really big and does one of those things and he did it early in the movie and then he did it again and then he did it again and like every time he did it I was like, oh man, that's so weird. I never noticed that before. I don't know if it's because screens have gotten bigger over time and you just see things you didn't see but um Anyhow, when you watch the movie, you'll see it, and you'll be like, "Oh, wow, that's different." That doesn't feel like that doesn't feel like top-notch acting to me. The glaring at people out of your good eye. If it's a pirate movie, it works, but not not in a New York City movie. So sometimes you see something you never saw before, and it really doesn't matter. You share it with a few friends. You maybe get a laugh or two, but it doesn't it doesn't really change the movie or ruin the movie. I'll admit that. But other times, you notice something you've never seen before. And it, it changes everything. You know, one of the main themes for Advent is the idea of light shining in darkness. 
And in this particular Advent season at Renewal, we've been praying and hoping that our minds would just be illuminated by the nativity story in a new and a fresh way. You know, although these stories are familiar to us, we uh, we might feel like we've heard it all before. We might feel like this is everything I know. I could rattle the details off for you, but but we're praying that we would see something that we haven't seen before this year. And that what we see would really move us in the core of who we are. That we'd be swept away in adoration of Jesus and who he is as we truly see him, as we're meant to see him. And so today's story is a familiar one. It's the story of the wise men from the east, or the story of the magi. And uh, we're going to turn to that story here in Matthew chapter 2. So you can turn your Bibles there. Uh, We'll start reading in Matthew chapter 2. Before we do, let's just pray. Holy Spirit, uh, as we embrace this idea of being swept away in adoration, uh, by you this holiday season, as we embrace this idea of, of just being able to see more than we've seen before. Uh, we come today and just start off by acknowledging that, God, we do not see it all. We don't know it all. Uh, you are so much greater and grander than we could possibly imagine. Um, and we just ask that, that this morning you would bring a revelation to us of your goodness. You would speak to our hearts in a way that is new and fresh and just opens our eyes to realities we have not considered before. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 2 begins, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And they asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. So you set the scene, you're in Jerusalem, first century A.D., suddenly, or maybe a couple of years before the first century A.D., depending on exactly when he was born. But you see, you've, you've seen something in the east, you've traveled a long way, you come to Jerusalem, and you're saying, we saw his star, we're wondering where the king is, we've come this way to worship him. And if you're not familiar with ancient Near East, you, you might be wondering, who are these magi? What is it they saw in the skies? What is going on here? And so simply put, these these were people who were astrologers, people who watched the stars, most likely from somewhere in Persia to the east, uh, leftovers of the Persian Empire and all that. In the book of Daniel, where uh, a record of Israel's time in exile in Babylon and, and in Persia, there's references to magicians and enchanters and sorcerers and astrologers again and again and again, this, the, uh, particularly in situations where the emperor of those empires is looking for advice, is trying to figure out what to do, and these are the people that he relies on. They're kind of a priestly class of, of, you know, the upper tiers of society. They've been educated. In fact, Daniel, who came and was exiled there as a Jew, ended up being trained in their ways and was a part of this group. But these sorcerer, priests, stargazers, their job was to watch the stars in the heavens and to divine out of that what it was that the gods wanted or what's going on, to interpret dreams and do all this kind of mystical stuff. And all of these types of things probably sound somewhat primitive, maybe a, a little bit hokey, a little bit superstitious to us now. And it's maybe easy to dismiss these things as, well, ancient people were just 
pretty ignorant and they didn't know what they were talking about and they thought they saw meaning in everything in the universe. Um, and we could dismiss all that except for uh, we are people who receive this ancient book and believe that it's supposed to shape our view of reality. It's meant to impact how we see the world around us. And if we look at the account that our, our Bible gives us of creation, on the fourth day of creation, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 14, God says, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let those lights serve as signs to mark sacred times and sacred days and sacred years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. In the ancient Hebrew person's mind, they think of God creating the world and their story talks about God bringing order and, and setting things up in such a way so that out of chaos, there is, is order. Order that makes life possible. Order that makes everything possible. And when the ancient Hebrews would look up into the sky, they saw the stars, they saw the moon, they saw the sun, they saw these things moving around in ordered and predictable patterns. Different lights would appear at different times. Different patterns of movement would repeat themselves. And they saw all of this and they're paying attention to all of it because they believed that these patterns meant something. They believed that all of creation was somehow telling God's story. We tend not to think of creation in this way in our, in our modern age, especially of the stars in the sky. We, we see the stars... And uh, and they do their thing without many of us ever noticing at all what happens. You know, oftentimes instead of paying attention to the stories, this you know the skies might be telling. We we've created so many of our own lights, we can hardly even see them anymore. And the stories that we tend to pay attention to are are only those stories that are worthy of of showing up on our screens, right? <laughs> Rather than looking up to see what creation's saying about God, we'll We'll look at a screen and, and listen to the stories it's telling us. This is where the irony, hopefully, is not lost on you that we think we are so vastly superior to the ancient people. We think we know so much more than them about our world and the meaning of it and all of that. I don't know exactly what the Magi saw in the sky. Maybe it was a comet or something, but... I do think that we have something to learn from people who are paying attention to the stories that creation is telling about who God is. And I think that this story is telling us that God had ordered the universe in such a way and ordered the lights and the stars and these things in the sky in such a way that a great light, a star, appeared in the sky precisely when the Messiah was born. And these stargazers in the east probably somewhere over in Persia, they see it and they know what it means because they've been paying attention. They're like, that light means that a great king has been born. And so they pack up their stuff, they pack up gifts for this great king, and they go to find him because they want to worship him. They arrive in Jerusalem, they tell everyone why they're there. In verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. King Herod was a ruler appointed over Judea by the Roman emperor. And, uh, and he's disturbed because he's heard that a king's been born in his province. And he's probably thinking, 
there ain't enough room in this province for more than one king, and that king is going to be me. He was disturbed. All of Jerusalem was disturbed with him. And then he called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he asked them, where is the Messiah to be born? They said, in Bethlehem in Judea, for this is what the prophet had written. They read a prophecy from Micah that talks about how the, the uh, sorry, the uh, Messiah is going to be born in, in Bethlehem. So then Herod calls the Magi in for a secret meeting. And he finds out exactly when the star appeared to them. And then he says to them, go to Bethlehem, search for this king, search carefully for this child. And as soon as you find him, report back to me because I want to go and worship him too. Question for the kids in the room, anyone under the age of 18, do you think Herod wants to go worship the child too? Probably not. What do you think he wants to do? Yeah, Herod wants to kill him. Kings are inherently insecure, so just tuck that away and know it for yourself. It's an American tradition. We know this, right? No kings here. Uh, I lost my place. Okay. After they heard what the king said, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen rose and went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. How many of you have ever found something that you were looking for for a long time or found someone that you were looking for for a long time? It's pretty, it's a pretty great feeling. The feeling of relief or joy when you find what you're looking for. How many of you have ever traveled 300 or, or more miles on foot to go and find a child who you believe is a great king and found him. Pretty amazing. I think about finding stuff, and especially how we used to have to find things as you navigated around the world without a smartphone that told you exactly how to get there. And at times it was just, it was overwhelming, the sense of joy and relief upon finding what you're looking for. Uh, we just don't get to experience that as much. Um, I need to start losing more stuff so I can find it. Trying to get inside the emotion of this scene. These people who have traveled a great distance looking for a child. They find the child. They're, they're, uh, the Greek word for worship, it, it, it's a word called pros, pros, uh, sorry, proskuneo. Proskuneo. Nailed that for sure. My ancient Greek is on point. It, it literally means to kiss towards something. And so to help clear some of that confusion, they have ancient inscriptions, you know, they carved pictures on everything uh, back in the day. And, and pictures of worship were people like blowing kisses to the deity in worship. And so the hands would be out, outstretched and somehow the people looking at the pictures know they're blowing kisses. I'm not exactly sure how. Um, or, or other ideas of like bowing down to the ground at their feet and, and kissing the ground under their feet. And the whole idea is that this is what it means, uh, this is humanity's place in relationship to the, the deities, to the gods in their lives. That there would be this act of worship that is, is very humble and also very intimate. And so the picture that we have of these, for lack of a better term, pagan sorcerers and magicians traveling great distances to come and see the Messiah, is they come into his presence. 
and they're overwhelmed at the sight of this child, this king. And yet the fact that they're worshiping him and the fact that they're bowing down before him, it's not just indicative of the blurring of lines between kings and deities in ancient times, because there's a lot of that. But it just shows us there's a revelation of who this child is. That these rulers of society would come and bow before him. I think when you imagine these pagan wise men uh, traveling from distant lands and then worshiping Jesus, you suddenly begin to realize that in, in many ways, the first people to recognize Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords was these people from way off in the middle of, of nowhere, outside of Judea, outside of the center of how God was working in the world at the time. And these three kings or magi or wise men or however they've been labeled over the years, they're swept away in adoration of this child. And they're bowing down in worship. It says, and then they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And here, if you're paying attention, if you've been reading through the story of, of Scripture and you've You've been reading slow enough to pay attention to everything that's going on. You realize Matthew's not just telling a story about Jesus' life, but he's working really hard to connect the dots for his audience between the story of Jesus' life and the Old Testament prophecies that talk about who the Messiah is. He doesn't always break away from the story to explain this to people like he did when he said the wise men came and the, and they searched the scriptures and then the scriptures said this is where he's going to be born and isn't it a coincidence that that's where Jesus was born and that's where they found him. He's trying to make you connect the dots there overtly. But other times he just mentions the details and you as a studied reader of God's word are meant to connect some dots yourself. Here, Matthew, I think, is intentionally linking the story of the Magi to prophecies like the one in Isaiah chapter 60, or there's a few of them in the Psalms too, that talk about the nations coming to the, the promised land, coming to Judea to worship God. E even the former oppressors of Israel. So we have this ruling class of captors from Babylon, the former oppressors coming to the king and bringing their treasures and bringing their incense to lay before him in worship. Matthew begins to point this out because in Matthew's mind, every detail of these stories is significant because these stories are telling the story of God who's at work in every detail of our stories. These gifts that the Magi are bringing are not just gifts that are fit for a king because they're expensive gifts. They're not just gifts that are foreshadowing the future of his life because one of them has to do with embalming and death. And, and, but they're evidence that he is the one who's fulfilling all of these things that were foretold about him. That this one is the Messiah who was promised. That Jesus was born, the word of God become flesh and dwelling among us so that we would never be the same. Let's pray, and then we're going to shift gears for a moment. Lord, we just thank you for uh, the beautiful way that you have preserved these stories for us. God, I pray that this Advent season 
we would be like those magi who would be willing to travel whatever distance is required to see the revelation of you that you're bringing to our lives. And when we have those moments to enter your presence, God, would you sweep us away with the glory of your light? Would you sweep us away with the the immense um, power of your presence? God, we don't want to just hear about these things. We want to be moved by you. And we know that How can we help but be moved if we can truly come into your presence? And so uh, just be working in us. Be working through us. Drawing us into that reality, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I know we've kind of been bouncing around a little bit, but we're going to bounce back to Genesis and back to creation because there's more to this story. Uh, We're we're moving to talking about baptism now. That's the transition here. (laughs) So day one of creation, we have a picture of God. And it says his spirit is hovering over the waters of the deep. And then the story begins to unfold. And what we see is a God who creates our world by bringing order to this, this world that is, is uh, the scriptures describe as wild and waste or void and formless. And God brings this order by separating the light from the darkness He separates the waters above from the waters below. He separates the land from the water. And this separation is all an act of God creating a space where humanity can live and flourish in God's good creation. And if you know the story, you know there's a point where humanity, through their disobedience to God and not trusting God, they invite the chaos to come back and take over creation. And from that point on, the waters of the deep symbolize in Scripture chaos and death. Waters symbolize the place where humanity cannot live. I was talking with someone this week who was considering a career in underwater welding. I said, man, that sounds scary. The welding part doesn't, but the underwater part sounds terrifying to me. He had a a relative who does it, and he thought, yeah, it is pretty terrifying, but the pay's pretty good, so I think I'll do it. Um, but we know this, right? You know you can't live underwater forever. Water is a place where humans drown. Water is a place where, where bad things happen, particularly for the Israelites who weren't a seafaring people. But then, throughout the story of God working in humanity, we have, we have uh, a theme from the fall in Genesis onward, we have a theme of God preserving humanity through the waters of death so that he can bring them into something new on, another, on the other side, a new life on the other side. So we were talking with this with a couple of people who were getting baptized before church, but can you think of any stories of people passing through waters of death? Anyone? Parting of the Red Sea, that's a good one. Jordan River happens again a generation later, right? There's this guy with his boat. He sails through the waters. God just, God's allows all of his creation to be overcome with the waters, the chaos again. And yet he tips off Noah, commands him to build a boat, preserves humanity through it. And so all throughout the Old Testament especially, and, and we have a story of God doing this thing where he preserves his people through the waters of death. And then, along comes this guy, John the Baptist. 
And he's preaching a message of repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins. He's proclaiming that God is doing something new now. And he's ushering a new kingdom and a new covenant. And he's inviting people to pass through the waters to be baptized so that they can be a part of this new thing that he's doing. Keep in mind that John's preaching to primarily a a first century Jewish audience. So they're really familiar with this theme of people passing through the waters. Their people went through the Wed Sea. They crossed the Jordan River. They know who Noah is. This is a familiar idea for them. And it's like he's saying to them in the same way that our people had to go through the waters of death to be a part of the nation that God was building to be a part of his people. He says, you have to go through these waters to be a part of this new kingdom that God is building. This theme's echoed again and again, and then it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the righteous one who shows us how humanity's supposed to live. And how did Jesus live? How did Jesus move into the eternal life that God had for him and, and establish the kingdom that God had for him? He passed through death. He passed through the figurative, the waters of death, as it were. He laid down his life on the cross. And so that thing that meant death became the pathway to life. So when followers of Jesus are participating in baptism today, what we are doing is taking a step of obedience in in saying, I want to join this story myself. I want Jesus' story of laying down his life, passing through death and coming into life on the other side, I want it to be my story. I understand how this has been the story from the beginning. This is what God has been doing. And I'm embracing the truth of this story that God is redeeming his people through the waters of death. And I'm saying that story is now taking a hold on my life. And it's going to be the defining plot line for my own life story. Christ's immersion in death has become my own immersion in sacrifice. Christ being resurrected and raised out of it has become my resurrection to my new life. So like Noah through the flood, like Israel through the, through the sea or across the Jordan, I'm choosing to be obedient to the leading of God in my life. I'm going into, I'm walking into the waters and I'm going to be raised out of the waters by the power of God into the new life that he's given me. So we have some people who are excited to embrace that story today. We have some people who are going to get baptized. And so we're going to take just a minute for them to gather. Uh, we'll have you gather right over here on this side. And then I'm just going to, I'm going to duck behind the curtain and change into my swimsuit real fast. And, uh, and then we'll get moving on with it. So uh, take this time to talk amongst yourselves and get yourselves uh, settled up here. Those of you who are getting baptized. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for being the one who goes before us to show us how to do this thing. Uh, we thank you that your story has become our story through your sacrifice and through your steadfast commitment to draw humanity into the beauty that you've always intended us to walk in. We thank you for these ones who are just taking another step of obedience, another step of public proclamation today that your story is their story. And as we come to your table, we thank you that it has been set with good food and good drink for us, that your sacrifice nourishes and edifies our souls uh, and is continually making us your people. 
as we come to eat and drink of the goodness that you have done for us, as we come to uh, embrace the warmth of Christian fellowship and ministry to one another, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, be working in this time in us and through us to accomplish your good purposes. And, uh, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.